There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting in to go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. Being prepared is all about having the right tools. The OnX off-road map and navigation app is the best fully functional GPS when you're out of service. Offline maps allow you to access all interactive land and trail data and custom map markups when you're out of service. Your phone's internal GPS gives you full navigation capabilities offline, so you'll always know where you are and how to get home safely. Go to onxmaps.com and use code MEATEATER to get 20% off your membership today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, coming at you, you know, a little bit bug bitten. So I just got back from Mexico and got bit by some, uh, bit by three different kinds of things. Those little sand fleas, mm-hmm. not the kind you use for fishing bait. Not little ghost crabs, which some people call sand fleas. Uh, bit by those, bit by regular old mosquitoes, and also bit by no seams. Hey. At dusk, sons of bitches come for you. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't have been prepared because. Dude, I brought down 40% deep. I'd put it on my kids' legs, and as soon as they went to bed, I'd give them a shower because I'm a little bit paranoid about deep. Yeah, uh, rightfully so, since it'll warp your phone. As I found, if you spill deep, if you spill this insect repellent on your phone, it'll warp your phone. Huh. So imagine what it does to your parts, you know, <laughs> your skin cells. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, p- coming at you partially bug bitten and definitely from the banks of the Mississippi. There's a writer that he, there's a writer named Ben Metcalf. I don't know if he writes anymore or not. He used to he used to write pieces for Harper's and was also was an editor somewhere. No, nah, can't remember who he worked for. But he wrote, and some of his work would be collected at Harper's. And this guy Ben Metcalf wrote a piece called "American Heartworm," and it was about the Mississippi. So as much as Twain, as much as Mark Twain would celebrate the Mississippi. Ben Metcalf uh, loathed the Mississippi River. Hmm. One of his critics, for a lot of reasons. One, that 
he feels that any self-respecting uh, river should be able to handle some amount of water without spilling out of its banks. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't like it for that reason. Another thing is, is he feels that it's also the Mississippi is a con man um, and is and, and stole it like stole its place in the American lexicon because by any reasonable reasonable measure, by any understanding of hydrology, the Mississippi isn't the Mississippi. The Mississippi is the Missouri. The Missouri is the great continent drainer. I mean, it heads in Three Forks, Montana, where it's where it's uh, Three Forks is the confluence of the Madison, Gallatin, and Jefferson. So it's like the secretary of, uh, at the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition, you had Madison, Secretary of State. That's over my head. Jefferson. And Gal. Look at who it's, they named it after those three fellers. Okay. And all, all, all political figures at the time. They all head together. They come together at Three Forks and form in Missouri. And then that thing flows thousands of miles and picks up a little shit and tributary called the Mississippi <laughs> and thereby changes its name. What all it's doing is just like picking up a, a minor tributary dwarfed by like not nearly what the Ohio is when it picks it up. Mm-hmm. It should be called the Missouri River who has this little, little known tributary called the Mississippi. This is Ben Metcalf's argument. Because of where it empties, not where it begins. It's because people saw it and didn't, re- didn't really until later fully comprehend like what that watershed was. That it was one of the great... Do you know if at the confluence, if the, which one is greater? Like which one has a... Oh, high... when they come together? Yeah. The Missouri's carrying more water. Hmm. And the Missouri's been cranking along for... The Mississippi heads like Lake Itasca. No, north, yeah, north central Minnesota. So how far from here? Not as far away as western Montana. No, not even close. The river's a con man. Uh, Yanni wanted to talk about that. This <laughs> quick little thing that I found on it, it just says the pres- it was named after the president and two of his cabinet members, but it doesn't say... Jefferson was the president. Yeah, but it doesn't... Well, Tommy Jefferson. Yeah. But it doesn't say, you know, what positions they held in the cabinet. It was like, uh, it was like treasurer and secretary or something like that. Easy to find out. Easy to... So easy to find out. It's staggering that Yanni hasn't found out yet. Um, Giannis, to recap something we were talking about, you've been messing around with sous vide cooking. Mm-hmm. You just did some shanks in your sous vide machine. Yeah. Tell me about that. For 48 hours, I cooked them. At what temperature? 160. Hmm. That's hot for sous vide. Yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, it is. On so, the hotter side. I don't think you... I, I, look, I've done two different recipes now, so I'm definitely still figuring out. And from what I've been reading online, I think there's still a lot of figuring out. I think one of the, the pluses or, you know, pitching points of sous vide is that you have this great window that the meat is done and but won't be overdone you might explain to folks what we're talking about 
think yeah, what probably, SUV I, is? I think the bulk of them. I think the bulk of them might know. Ooh. My brother just last night would, texted me wondering if I knew what a banh mi sandwich was. Oh, I've been eating those things for yeah, those are tasty. Long time. So here's a guy it's that didn't know a banh mi on a website called uh, ChefSteps.com, which is a sous vide recipe website. That's the sous vide machine I have. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Um, they have a squirrel banh mi recipe. Made with sous vide squirrel meat. There you go. Yeah. But, uh, my bro made banh mi with pate that he made from some, some game livers, deer liver, and something else he put in. There. I would bet you, there's no way we could find out, but that it might not be the bulk of our listeners would know what sous vide is. I'm guessing. I would take that bet. Okay. That it could be 50. I wouldn't take that. You wouldn't. You're saying that of the mugs listening right now, Less than half are familiar with sous vide. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying that that's a high probability. High enough where I would take the bet. Sure. Break it down. But uh, so but sous vide cooking based. Oh, let me do uh, this. Pat, you know what sous vide is? I was just going to say, I don't know. <laughs> oh. Mr. Dern? Don't look at me, man. I'm oh. learning. So half of this room. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they actually count as listeners. I really don't. That's true. It's good. Um, but you basically, uh, there's a, it, it's cooking in water. And so that you're cooking meat in water. Actually, you cook anything. There's vegetable recipes. There's fish recipes. Egg recipes. Uh, but so that you don't, uh, you know, basically boil your meat and get it all soggy. You put it into a sealed plastic bag. Now you can just use a regular old Ziploc or if you have a vacuum sealer, you can go that route. Um, the machine, the way that the whole system's set up is usually just use like a large stock pot, maybe a two or three gallon stock pot. And then there's a machine that looks like a, I don't know, it's wand shaped, I guess. Um, and basically half of it plunges down into the water and it regulates the temperature of the water. And I don't know what the lowest and highest settings are, but you basically just set that and it keeps it at a perfect temp that you want to keep it at for however long you want to do it yeah like you like if you're cooking like let's say you're cooking a roast and you want to pull the roast it for rare you know you want to pull you pull you want to pull your venison roll so say you like i like to pull it up 130 mm-hmm. or 125 well the oven's 100 400 degrees yeah right so this thing's climbing 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 to eventually reach that and you're intercepting it at that point where you want to nab it out here, and then, and here then you, put add, it, add you, you set the water at the final setup. temperature. Yeah, add to the complication of that setup is that you pull it at one temp, knowing that it's going to continue to rise to your goal temperature. Because the outer heat is going to continue to penetrate into the inside. Right. So this, you just set it at what you want it to end up at. Exactly. So if you're cooking, if you know that you like your salmon, say, at blank temp, you just set your water bath at that temp, drop into your bag. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about it, like if you set it at 160, the meat never gets above 160. And, yeah. But what does happen is that there is a breaking down of, you know, proteins, obviously, because I cooked my shanks for 48 hours and... 48 hours. 48 hours. That's the thing. But, I think. but again, the recipe was like 24 to 48. Mm-hmm. It's like, 
we could have eaten it Saturday night. Instead, we ate it Sunday yeah, night. It's, it's perfect on Tuesday and it's perfect on Wednesday. Because yeah. it's just keeping it at that temperature yeah. that whole time. Yeah. It's, it's so holding it at like a The temperature's not time. rising, which I think when you're going for like a medium rare steak is important. But in this case of these shanks, it, it's obviously continuing to break it down. Which is, I think, where it might get a little bit trickier. The window might not be as great when you are working with a piece of meat that you want to eat at medium rare because mm-hmm. medium rare... Where whatever 130 degrees after six hours is going to be different than 130 degrees after 10 hours. Oh yeah, yeah. I kind of exaggerate about done on Tuesday and done on Wednesday. Same temperature on Tuesday, yes. same temperature on Wednesday, but it has a it has the effect of you can screw it up. Yeah. You can screw it up. I don't know exactly how yet. I'll, I'll know more. I'm going to keep messing around with it. But uh, well, I know how. Like things that I've screwed up is I've found that when it comes to cooking wild game. For me personally, um, I don't like I don't like to use the sous vide for like lean roasts that don't have a lot of connective tissue mm-hmm. on them. Such as like if you were to take a whitetail deer and take the sirloin or round roast off the back leg, I, I can get a better effect. I-, I can get a better product in my oven than I can get with my sous vide. Because it gives it, to, to my taste, it gives it a sort of pastiness. Where I think it really shines is when it comes down to cooking things, it's, a, it's an easy, pretty fail-safe way to cook cuts that are best cooked, slow-cooked mm-hmm. strategy. I get you. Like, I've taken one of the, one of the things I made that I liked most with sous vide was I took one time a javelina front leg of a javelina. Which is a rascally little, <laughs> a rascally little hunk of meat. It just sounds tough. <laughs> yes, yeah. You can pull those strands out and floss your teeth with them. Hmm. Okay, but in that thing, I think I gave it like thirty six hours. Um, and then it just is like you could just pick it apart with your fingers, and it's silky and beautiful. Yeah, well, what I did is kind of toss those, picked all that meat kind of toss them with oil and then stuck them under a broiler for a minute. Because the thing with sous vide cooking is you're oftentimes getting it just right. But what you get used to, and I remember one time a chef, like I'm reading about the chef who wanted to quit being a chef. And he says, well, I just got bored with it. Um, making things soft on the inside and crispy on the outside. Mm. It just got old to me. But like when you do a roast in your oven, like one of the nice things about it is you get that like, that like finished outside. Yeah. You know, like, like crispy browned outside, mm-hmm. and you cut in it, and lo and behold, there's like this magical red middle, and it's like the whole thing together. All the parts are bigger than any individual part. And that texture, this. that meat of a nice roast like that, the texture of the meat is a part of it. And if the other way of cooking is breaking that down, then I see where you're. Yeah, because you, you wind know, up with the whole beauty of it, like the the crispy outside, the red inside. It's like it's all nice together. Yeah. So what a, a part of sous vide cook, like most sous vide preparations, you'll find that. You're going to get it perfect and then sear it after the fact. Whereas if I'm cooking a roast in my oven, I sear it and finish in my oven. Here you're often like a lot of, if you look at a sous vide, a lot of preparations, you're starting it. You get it all done. It's ready to go. Then you take that thing out and sear it. Or people even finish them with like a torch apparatus. Yeah. Hmm. Right. Like you might like people to do like sous vide scallops and then take a torch and sear the scalp with a torch. Yeah, and really control that then. You yeah. know. 
So it's real science-y cooking. But as good as it is for some stuff, I don't think it's like perfect. It's not like perfect for everything. No, I don't think all of a sudden I'm just going to start having just like... Get rid of your oven. (laughs) And five buckets in the kitchen and one says Monday and then Tuesday, Wednesday. (laughs) But I'll tell you what's cool, though, is you could take a couple, let's say, because you did shanks, right? How'd they turn out? Great. So I had, I did a um, sick deer shank, the whole shank in a bag. It had a whitetail shank. And then I had one bag, I think, that had three or four of those. Again, do you know the name of that little, it's like a shank, but, you know, it's not connected to the bone. It's connected to that. Yeah. The big tendon. Don't know the name of it. That goes up on the hind leg. You kind of get that big shank-like piece, right, that has all that same sinew and collagen and stuff running through it. And um, the ones on the bone were delightful. This silky, smooth, wonderful flavor, um, and no dryness at all about them. The, the antelope little football tendon chunks I just described, um, there's still a touch of dryness. And it wasn't the sous vide's fault. It's just the cut of the, the meat. Nature of the meat. It yeah. just didn't have as much fat, connected tissue, whatever it is, as the shanks that were on the bone. Yeah. That's, that's kind of like the, the sort of the thing with all forms of cooking is um, not all hunks of meat are made equal. No. If you went to make, sh- if you took some like sirloin meat and went and did a a shank preparation for it, it's gonna be miserable. But there's something about those th- those pieces that have all that collagen or stuff that breaks connective tissue, silver skin tendons that break down into that just like silky beautiness. Mm-hmm. I love it. Um, well, as I say, the nice thing about it is if let's say you're having some folks over for dinner. You could bag out servings, stick them in that thing, and you don't know you're eating at 5 o'clock or 8 o'clock, right? Yeah. You could bag out servings, stick them in that thing the day, a day and a half before, two days before, a day before, whatever, for your particular preparation, knowing that at the second you want to reach in there and cut those bags open, it's all ready. But you're not just, you're not just like putting, you know, you're, you're putting all the ingredients in there. You can, you know, of what I'm the saying? meal. Yeah, yeah. So I'm saying, like, you. like yeah. you know, you're if you're doing shanks, you're putting all the asabuco, all the things that would traditionally go into asabuco in that bag and sealing that bag up and putting them in there. What I'd like to mess around with a little bit is like I was thinking about maybe putting like a couple sprigs of thyme in there, sprig of rosemary, That's what I did. some butter. You know, maybe trying to some. Wonder if it'll impart that flavor. Oh yeah, yeah. no, I cooking. feel yeah. I I packed that bag full of good things to eat. Even when, you know, doing something like the javelina shank. But yeah, I just like for me though, cooking those like loin and loin and like quality roasts. Yeah. It's like I get such what I get out of my oven cannot be beat. Yeah. Yeah. So cannot for you it's beat. more of a replacement for basically braising yep. technique. It's a nice it's a nice fail safe, time friendly. It takes a lot of time to do it, but it's good preparation and when you said that you're putting all kinds of good so you're like putting vegetables and all kinds of things in with it or? sure you can't knowing that the, the vegetables are going to be a little yeah mushy because like you know everything even then everything has its own cooking time right, but i mean there's like it's it's becoming such a popular thing now that there's no short you can go find recipes for anything like sure. if you go buy us if you buy a sous vide device 
it's going to come with a book. And you realize that every damn thing you've ever eaten. Now, one thing, uh, um, Steve uh, Kendrat, mm-hmm. he's, he's been doing salmon. Like I gave him some salmon from the fish shack. He's doing salmon in his sous vide and loving it. Really? That dude's a sous vide fool now. He knows about it. The timing uh, different I'm on that? Steve. He know he damn sure knows about it. He likes it. I sent him some vacuum bags, and he was he was more fired up about sous vide with them than he was about freezing them. Huh. Speaking of Steve, I was also telling you that I made his uh, fennel sausage recipe, um, which it's just it's it's so good. It might be so good because it is so simple, but literally all it is is fat, salt, pepper, and fennel. Well, meat. Yeah. So you got your buck. Yeah, you got your buck meat. They cut some fat it. in. Yeah, a lot of fat. It's his recipe was fifty fifty. That's a, I, and, and that's I, a bit much. And I had the sausage. It's phenomenal, but I think it's like yeah. A lot. But I wanted the first time I want to do it. I want to follow the recipe because sure. I feel like you should, and then you can tweak it because you just never know otherwise. So next time I probably will cut it back to forty, maybe even thirty. Um. Yeah, and my thinking on it, it goes beyond it's like what tastes good. 50-50, at some point, it ceases to be a wild game dish. That's true. At some point, it becomes, it's like a hybrid. It's all a hybrid. Like, my brother used to be like a real purist, and he wouldn't put any domestic fat in his game meat. He would just, if he was making burgers, he'd crack an egg in there. So Which he could one? Hold, Danny. He'd crack an egg in there so he could make it hold together in a patty. Yeah. That's extreme. I think 50% is extreme. I find my personal comfort zone in the 10 to 20% fat. Yeah. But I feel like when to, I'm grinding to me, meat. sausage, it can't be sausage in, if, there's, if it's not like greasy enough. There's got to be some grease left in the pan. Because otherwise, I feel like you're just eating this like thing that kind of tastes like sausage because the flavor's there. But something is just not sausage-like because you've taken too much fat out. Okay, then let's come up with a different word for it. Meat uh, sticks. No, that's not right. I get what you're saying. Sausage-flavored dry meat. (laughs) (laughs) Ground, dry, ground meat. Sausage-flavored dry meat. I'm cool with that. But his sausages were good. But anyways, yeah, back to it. And the recipe came out wonderful. I mean, it's just so simple. Fennel. I mean, it's all you're like tasting and salt yeah. and pepper, and it's wonderful. Does he toast his fennel first? I don't know if he, the recipe didn't call for it. That's a good trick, man. When you're making sausage, like whatever, like sweet Italian, any kind of sausage, you're putting fennel in there. Take all your seeds and toast them. Right. And what does that do? Smells your whole house up like fennel. fennel? Smells yeah. good, man. I don't know if it then goes away, but it's just like really like pleasing. If you toast them and you get them all warm, like coriander, fennel, whatever, you put them in a pan over a burner, just a dry pan over a burner and kind of shake it. And pr- they'll kind of let off like a, like a oil. Yeah. And they'll get very fragrant. Then you throw those, but if they're still warm, you throw those in your coffee grinder if you're doing like, if you're like pulverizing a little bit, then you really got something that smells nice. I think it's got to add to the flavor because there's a lot of dishes, like when you're cooking Indian food, a lot of times like you've sauteed your onions and, and maybe a couple of the other things that you're sauteing like that in the oil that might take five or 10 minutes. And before you add like, let's just say if it's curry, before you add the coconut milk and, and your carrots and peas and chicken or whatever it might be, um, when you throw the spices in, you, le- you let them kind of cook and toast 
mm-hmm. in that pan for a couple minutes to you know release extra flavor, and then you add in the rest of the ingredients. So I'm sure it works the same for that fennel. Yeah. The next thing I'm going to sous vide, and this is the last we'll talk about it. I still have two big ass yellow eye fillets that I've been eyeballing in my freezer, and I want to get to them pretty quick. They la- they last a lot longer in salmon in the freezer because they're not that fatty. But I'm gonna do those. I'm gonna do those guys with my sous vide machine. I used to have a giant sous vide machine that came with like what looked like you could wash a child in the tub. <laughs> but I gave it to my buddy Pooter because now I got that smaller one. Um, Pat Durkin, Doug Duran, the cousins, <laughs> Durkin and Duran, <laughs> the Durkin and Duran cousins. Pat, okay, I, it doesn't really matter what you say because it's not going to change my mind. What, who, who has, tell me about your opinions on, your findings on wound, wound loss. I was going to say, uh, before I even said what you said, I was going to say, I know no matter what I say right now, I won't probably change won't change my, your mind. And, well, you were going to preface it. With, <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to be my preface. Um, I'll start by saying one article I've always liked the way I handled it was I broke it down one time in our Wisconsin gun season to show that our peak deer season was the year 2000 where we killed like over 400,000 deer. In and, Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. And we basically, if I broke it down to show that we were killing about a – 1.4 deer per second during that nine-day gun season. You break it over the course of a nine-day season. And then I started calculating, I started looking into it. To kill 1.4 deer a second. Oh, come on, man. So, so, all right. <laughs> Did you ever figure it out like an opening day? No, see, that's that, 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 <laughs> Hundred percent. I, I actually, I actually did that, but I don't have that. I don't have that at the tip of my tongue. No, I actually did break it down by by um, opening weekend, and then um, opening day, and then the rest of the season. I had this whole article on this whole t- topic. So, but, but, but real real quick, on opening day of the four hundred thousand that got killed in the season, can you guess how many got killed on opening opening yeah, weekend? Yeah, typically opening weekend, I think they figure close to sixty five, seventy percent gets okay. killed opening weekend. Then, I, then it just kind of goes down, peaks back up around Thanksgiving because we always have our season around, starts the weekend before Thanksgiving that ends the Sunday after Thanksgiving. How big was the deer herd this year, the year you're talking about? Um, that, that was like an all-time record number. So I think they calculated 1.5 million deer or so, 1.6 million deer they, they estimated in that population. And they were able to... They were able to pull a harvest of 400,000 out yeah, of Yeah, it was even more than 400,000. And that was at yeah. the time regarded as like wildly too many deer. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, I think realistic people thought that was too many deer. We had too many deer. and you know, Too many so, deer on the ground, yeah. not and, getting killed, and then going too many into, deer alive. But then you go into um, what hunters want, though, and there was a lot of hunters that year. That was, that was a pretty mediocre to average season. You know, so you always get those arguments. These people are never happy. Never happy. <laughs> As I said, said the last time we talked, deer make people stupid. You know, just, <laughs> it's just the way it is. Um, but to continue my, my discussion, though, is I, um, I got curious about that. I thought if we're shooting that many deer, you know, deer per second, and I think last season was, was point, 0.62 deer per second in the last gun season, 2017. 2017 was 0. Yeah. Six two deer, so point six deer 
per, per second. Right. And in 2000, it was, it was more than more than double that. Okay. Yeah. Over the averaged out over the course of uh, average over the day. course. Yeah. During average. hunting hours, I just was doing some math there. Right. During like, Wait a minute, exactly. Some, oh yeah, you got <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I broke it. I broke it down by hours of shooting light. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, of I see. It. Okay. And, and then um, what was fun then was I took took those kind of numbers and started digging into the research I could find on on how many how many shots get fired for each deer killed. And there actually is, you know, some research around Wisconsin from the 70s, and there's research from Carolina, South Carolina in, in like 2009, uh, 1999, that time period. Um, Ontario did this one time. But basically, Wisconsin back in the 70s, 1970s, um, and some of the research they did was, it was averaging between 3.5 and 7 shots per deer taken was about what was coming at. What? Yeah. This, this, is, this is in one area. It's, this is never one of these qualifiers where I'll never convince you because it's most studies are taking place in controlled settings because you can't just go out in the landscape with all the variables and get anything interesting. And so anyway, so you had this variability because they had different kind of seasons. They set up one season where it's antlerless only, so the guy had to be more careful when you shot that you weren't shooting a buck. So that that kind of cuts down how many how many shots are being fired. Then if, but if you have a wide open season where anything's legal, they were shooting a lot. They shot like almost twice as many shots in those kind of seasons. But then I looked at, um, I found this, this research from South Carolina, looked into that, and they were shooting only 1.2 times for each deer they killed. And those guys, though, were setting up on basically a shooting house, rifle rest, nice setups where they're touching up the shots like a, you know, a real pre- precision type shooting. And then you had um, other scenarios. So uh, none of these things are all equal. You know, I'm, I'm getting that here. Yeah. So, so if I did was I had like... So, so, the, so the South Carolinians yeah. are, when they looked at this, they were shooting not much. Not much. 1.2 shots per deer. But yeah. who was up, who was super high again? Wisconsin. Man, you guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was in the seventies, but, but, but of course, too. That, that, <laughs> well, well that, that's, right. now, 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 what Doug brings fair up, fair point. But it's a fair point because plus the plus they're hunting an area where guys couldn't go in, and set up tripod stands, they couldn't hang all these different things. A lot of it's probably being shot off the ground, you know, offhand, and so the conditions weren't like Mooching. South Carolina had. Yeah, it's probably more like shitty scopes. I mean, the, the way I mean, that. <laughs> the way us old guys used to hunt, you know, <laughs> and that, and that was, I took a lot more shouts when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and but then you, get, but then so like what I did though is I looked at all these different variables and thought, where does range from one point two deer per shot to over seven? So anyway, seven shots yeah, per, per deer. deer. Yeah, and and and, and it's, I I just. It, I can't understand it. I'm not. I'm not calling well, you a liar. I just don't understand it. Where, where a lot of that comes from is that you know, you're shooting lever actions, pump shots, shotguns, that kind of stuff, some automatics, and and they're sh- showing to that once a guy um, missed a shot, well, he had follow up shots, and like half the guys shooting at that first shot were missing the shot. So right, and then the dude takes off and bang, 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 all of a sudden there's blood in the air. So you can see and then how, he does that three times, well, or and, he does that two times, and then he gets a deer finally. Yeah. And you think, well, I've been on public hunting grounds up the river here in um, Winona, Minnesota, back in the early 90s. And I remember thinking, 
every time it sounded like one of those shotguns went off because it was a shotgun only area, it, it sounded like they were shooting all five shots out of that semi-automatic you know, shotgun or pump shotgun. It was, it was constant. And so I, would, I guess I'm not that shocked by hearing that seven was the average in this one particular. It was, it was one hunt that this went on like that. Yeah, if you go read Yanni's buddy, Jack O'Connor. <laughs> I call him Yanni O'Connor. <laughs> Jack O'Connor, all those guys did was shoot. Yeah. They'd crawl up on a herd of something, and it'd be the, the you know, 20 rounds, and then they'd go up and, like, analyze the performance. First shot caught it, you know, low across the chin. Second shot, second, third, and fourth, fifth, and sixth whiffed them. Yeah. My seventh shot really brought, anchored it down. <laughs> well. So, sure. Yeah, so, so what I did, though, is I averaged them. I thought, well, sevens obviously throw that one out. One's, you know, that's the other extreme. But average is out, and you came up, my, my average came up to 3.45 shots per second, I mean, per, per, per deer. And so then I started calculating that. I thought, well, last gun season in Wisconsin, if you use 3.5, 3.45 shots per deer, last year in Wisconsin, we were shot close to 800,000 rounds to get <laughs> to get that number of deer we, we brought, brought in last, last fall. And during that season that I talked about, our record season, it was up in, uh, you know, I think a million and a half shots. And, well, then I went and I thought, I, I looked at the top 10 deer states in our country in that year 2000, and I came up to, it was like 12 and a half million rounds, if you're using that as your average, were being fired. So then, so I'm working my way back to your discussion here, you and I have it's, just, I, it, it's it, just too staggering for me to. It, it, it's huge, and so when when we get in these discussions about wounding, I've always maintained that in my own experience, it's it's tougher. When I look at every deer I've killed, I've killed over a hundred of them. I think when I've shot the ones with the rifle, I didn't didn't always know if I got them or not by the by the way the deer responded. Where I thought most deer are shot with the bull, I've always known if I hit him or not. I mean, I was—I don't think I've ever been shocked, you know, it, that I missed one or I or I hit one that I, that that I um, thought I missed that kind of thing. That's a good point. Yeah, gun hunting. Yeah, bow hunting. You 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 don't you. Yeah, bow hunting. You don't usually like can't tell if you. Yeah. You typically you, you know, might you, you might one you might shoot and then not be clear on the quality of the. Oh, hit. that's that's common. Yeah, I mean, you talk. That's to almost the, not not quite the norm, but it's pretty. It's typical yeah. not to be like a little like man. I don't know. It looked like it might be a little far back or yeah. a little, little high. Oh, when you talk to guys that track deer with 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 dogs, and they ask the guy, "Where'd you hit this deer?" And a typical bull hunter say, "Right here, right in the pocket, right in the pocket, right <laughs> in the shoulder." And they find the deer, and it's got you know, you know, in the ham, in the hams, you know, who knows where, you know. Yeah. So so I've so I've always thought that if you were to really get some research on this what research we have and find out what the percentages are for bull hunting versus gun hunting. I'm, I'm pretty well convinced that it's about equal. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's in, cause we, but again, what, what the, 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 the you know, I just poke holes on my argument because all of those studies have been basically done under pretty controlled situations. Yeah, you know, bull hunting. The ones they've been able to study are typically control situations. It's like the, the one that's famous for um, the initial one that uh, we often refer to is right up here at Camp Ripley, a couple hundred miles from here in Minnesota. And there they had a um, their their initial wounding um, 
number of de- percentage of deer wounded was, I think, around 28%, 25% right in that range. But then they figured that they realized, well, just because a deer is wounded doesn't mean it's it's dead. It doesn't mean it's um, not going to be recovered. And sure enough, they found that in that situation, there's a lot of hunters in that, in that camp. And, and this, this, these are weekend hunts, I should, should have said, too. These are strictly a two-day hunt, then it's done. So it's a real control situation. What they found was that um, their average over, the, over four, I think it's like four different hunts they, they studied. Only 13% of those deer were never recovered, of those deer that were shot and hit, hit in some location. Only 13% on average weren't recovered. What does recovered mean? Taken home. T- taken home. You know, the guy dragged that deer out of the off the off the camp's property. Now, um, then there's also inedible condition. Yeah, That's yeah, what I'm yeah. Because you know, at, at Sunday at at this is a Saturday and Sunday hunt that they did at Camp Ripley. Sunday afternoon, the army basically throws you out. You can't go back and look for your deer if you don't have it. Tough luck. You know, so that's that was the unrecovered deer was thirteen percent, and and this was which weapon. Bow and arrow. Bow and arrow. And when was that? That was back in the early 90s. And so that's one study. Then other studies they've done, one was out in Connecticut in a suburban area. One was over in Iowa in a uh, suburban area. Then there's like uh, a naval weapons station out in Maryland did one not too long ago. They wrapped it up about 10 years ago. And theirs was, and one of Maryland, I think their wounding rate was, um, I think, 18% where they, these were deer that were hit and not recovered. Now, the one in Connecticut was about, I think, 14%, 13%, 14%, and the one in Iowa suburbs was about 13%, 14%. So, and then, then the one with, now, now switching to, to rifle. Now, how many of these rely on self-reporting? Well, they all rely on self-reporting. That's what, okay. Yeah. And That's why so, I, when I, earlier when I said that no matter what you say, I won't. Right. Because... Because I know that it relies on self-reporting. Yeah, yeah. but but what they find too is self-reporting typically is that if you get the people right on the spot when they come in, most of these guys like in these in these suburban hunts, these are guys that um, I'm pretty sure the one in well I know the one in Connecticut was a shooting test. You had to pass a shooting test of bow and arrow to even be allowed to hunt, and I think the one in Iowa had that kind of speculation. That, so that above speculation average too. archers then. Well, yeah, that's and, then, and again that's another factor mm-hmm. that these are people who are dead serious bull hunters mm-hmm. who know that taking long shots is used to increase the risk. But what, what I found interesting looking at that, that South Carolina study on the, with a the rifle, these were dead serious riflemen. And these guys, they're, they're sitting there with basically a little tripods in, in their shooting setup. They're, they're typically shooting 150 yards and at 125 yards, and they found a real split. Once you start going beyond 125 yards, even these guys who are really good, they started hitting more deer and, and not knowing if they hit them, losing them, that kind of thing. But every shot taken, every deer fired at in that study, they had dogs. They'd go out there and look around. And in that study, that they ended up finding out that um, they figured the wounding was about, fit, was about 15 to 20% wounding loss. Even with that these really good shots, shooting controlled settings, not taking these long flyers, they were still, you know, had a 15 to 20% wounding loss. And a lot of those deer they had never would have found, if not for the dogs going out there and finding evidence of a hit that they thought they missed. Hmm. You know, because, you know, you know, everyone here has been in those situations where you fired a shot 150 yards across a field or whatever. 
you walk over and you look around, look around, look around, you can't find any sign. And a lot of people give up, not, mm-hmm. not look any further. There's no snow cover in many cases. Mm-hmm. And that's the other factor that all these moving parts is what makes a wounding loss so hard to ever really pin down for sure is that you have so many different conditions, so many different um, ways that things can go wrong that it's hard to really quantify this stuff. But what we have been able to quantify really shows pretty strikingly similar results. So that's why I say I, 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 would, I would have a hard time being convinced that bull is wounding anymore on a percentage basis than rifles. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American made success story and Black Buffalo's award winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives 
for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company. Working knives for working people. 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Handful of thoughts. Yep, go ahead. In keeping with today's political atmosphere i'm just gonna ignore the data okay <laughs> and just go with what i know is i'm just gonna go with what i know is right um but i had yeah i okay, the couple things one is this isn't this is not to me this is not a moral argument okay like to me the um I think each person strives to, well, damn sure better, strive to be as effective and humane and, and as efficient as possible. Um, and I think that when you go into the woods, no matter like how high your skill set and how good your intentions, there's always the chance that something can go mm-hmm. wrong. And it will if you stick at it long enough and you'll hit something that you don't find. It just, mm-hmm. it just happens. Totally agree. So by saying that one is more or less a fact, one method of hunting, you know, we could even break out crossbows and break mm-hmm. out trad archery and break out, um, you know, conventional archery tackle and break out firearms. Um, no matter how much you break it down and start comparing them, to me, it's not, you're not like trying to find a value judgment. You're, you're not looking for like who's right, right. who's correct and right. who's incorrect, who's right and who's wrong. I'm not chasing after that. Mm-hmm. So, it makes it the, the discussion. Um, yeah, it's an acad- It's more an. It's almost an academic subject, I think. But it can it can inform things. I am generally. That's one thought. Another thought is I'm generally leery of anic- like just anecdotal stuff. Okay, but in a case like this, I have so much anecdotal evidence gathered over such a long period of time where I'm able to rule out the inherent errors of self-reporting or just from experiences and the experiences of people who I'm very close with and I understand their skill sets. Um, I, you haven't changed my opinion. Mm-hmm. I feel that if you take something like, like take something like elk, okay, take something like elk, I think that there is a, much higher rate of wound loss. And this is informed by personal opinion as well as the opinion of many other people. Mm-hmm. There's a much higher rate of wound loss on elk with archery equipment than there is with firearm equi- equipment. It's like, I'm just, I know, I just know. 
as bad as that sounds. Well, and I'm not telling you yeah, what to do with no, that. No. I'm not telling anybody what to do with that piece yeah. of information, but it's a thing. It's like a debate that comes up yeah. all the time. I, I, but here's I, the thing. Yeah. Go ahead. The, my, part number three. This then, then it's yours again. Part number three is we don't know the mortality question. Okay. Right. I one time found I was out on a backpacking trip. Well, llama backpacking, you know, backpacking with llama trip in the summertime in the Idaho Panhandle, and I lost my spoon and found an elk carcass or elk skeleton and was trying to figure out what bone would be most suitable to craft a new spoon out of that I could reach into a freeze-dry bag with. And I started looking at the thoracic process on the vertebra, and I thought, damn, that looks like a great spoon. So I picked up one of the vertebra to be like the one that had the longest thoracic process, so the one that's kind of like above the animal's hump. And lo and behold, embedded within the bone, the bone entirely healed around it, is a muzzy broadhead. Their slogan is bad to the bone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I put pictures of this up on, we'll put a picture up in the show notes. But So here's this thing growing around it. Now, the guy that shot that arrow maybe would, would probably be surprised to learn that that thing took the hit. Somehow the arrow shaft unthreaded because it was just a naked broadhead, no piece of shaft on it, unthreaded. The elk healed around the broadhead, and I know that it died in the winter because it had dropped. It was it died with dropped antlers. So however long it takes to calcify, like to completely encase a broadhead and calcified bone on your vertebra, that guy might think, oh, he might be all depressed still about that bull he killed and couldn't find when it wasn't dead. So that's the other thing is when we talk about wound loss, we're just saying like you didn't find it. Mm-hmm. But what we don't know is what's lethal and what's not lethal. You, so that matters to me. Mm-hmm. But what you just the story you just told uh, isn't that a uh, pro bowl pro bowl if you're not to get pro and con. No, I don't look at it as either. I'm just saying what I'm saying is in sussing out the answer, which yeah. I'm interested. What, yeah. what I was trying to build up there one mm-hmm. is one nothing you say is going to change my mind. That was point one. <laughs> Two, <laughs> it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I agree. Except for just I, it's good. To, I just like to know stuff. Yeah, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not going to like go and make like right. like. Well, if I was like ruler of the world and I had all the answers in front of me, I wouldn't like go and make a decision around it. Except for except for in cases like, for instance, when you're there's some bear units in Alaska where when you wound a bear, you notch your tag. Right. Yep. That kind of thing, I'm generally in favor of. I, I'm open to that and in favor of that in places. Mm-hmm. You wound the animal, you notch your tag. But that leads again into point three because that's under the assumption that you've removed an animal. And what we don't know in this is it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell and it's hard to study the survival rates. Yeah. So you fire an arrow, whap, you get a hit, you trail the blood, there's no blood. You start cutting circles. You come back the next day, cut a million circles, can't find blood. Your buddy can't find blood. He brings out his fail-safe dog. The dog can't find anything. Um, is it dead or not? Mm-hmm. So that was that was the part three. Is like you okay. still don't know even when right. you know. Right. And the, the thing I was going to say is that 
I fully agree with you on the, the idea that this is not a moral discussion. I, I've always, the other thing I should have said too, I could have prefaced it with is that we're the only predator with a conscience. Yeah. You know, we're the only predator that tries to make a science out of how we go about this stuff. We really try to figure out what's the best freaking way to kill that deer every damn time, you know, down dead. And because you think, well, when a hawk hits a rabbit, I've, I've been on, on, on hawk hunts and it's pretty, pretty fast and they're pretty good, but they, they have wounding loss. Predators have wounding loss. So I will, I will never get into this right or wrong discussion because I think that's, that, that to me is bullshit is part of the part of the equation. It's just I think hunting is we're the only ones that worry about it as humans. So, but one of the things I'll just say one more thing real quick and then let Doug say something because Doug's he, raising Doug, his hand. Doug, Doug's, Doug's waiting to go here. <laughs> um, the, the thing I'd, I'd say about about the story with the, the the arrow wound. One thing that I think we can say from some of the research too is that a deer that's wounded with a bow and arrow is much more likely to survive the wound and, and, and go on. And it might not be, it's, it's not nice, it's not pleasant, I'm sure, to carry a broadhead around in your spinal column or in your shoulder blade or a leg bone. Jim Bridger did it. Yeah, I mean, but humans have done it too. And so I was saying, Jim Bridger carried a, in right. shoulder, carried a uh, yeah. arrowhead well, around in his back. I think about your dad. Your dad walked around with, how many years with, with um, pellets in his, 13 in his foot? Thirteen shotgun pellets yeah. in his foot. Yeah, so it, it happens, and it's not, I'm not excusing it, but I'm saying this this stuff happens. And another story I remember um, from a hunt on Doug's place. First time you and I met was um, Tyson having a, a bad shot on, on a deer, and it was a shot that if you made that shot with a bow and arrow, that deer would have been healed up in probably a couple of days and gone on and never never um, looked back. Whereas it was a it was a high hit in the back and the meat of the back, and I remember there was hair everywhere on that mm-hmm. impact area. And Steve never a good sign. Yeah, never a good sign. And Steve went down, went after it, and caught up with it and finished it off. Ran it down in the woods, as I recall. Yeah. And and so I think if you look at it that way, one one of the things that came out of that that um naval naval station naval weapon station study with bow and arrow was that they, they figured that the deer that were they knew weren't recovered, that they knew they're wounded but not recovered was bought. They figured about 6% of those went on to have normal lives and just continued on with their... What percent? 6%. 6% of the deer that they, that they could not recover. They knew were hit, but not recovered. And then they compared that with um, the deer were hit by motor vehicles on that base, and that was more like an 11% um, died, hmm. whereas only 6% of the bone arrow ones died. So, oh, hold on a minute. Or did I You're reverse saying- that? Six percent. I think I got my gotten it reversed. You got it reversed. I think I reversed. But um, basically, more you're more the deer are more likely to die when they're hit by a, a car than they were by a bow and arrow once they're out, you know, out on their own, moving around. That it was only like six percent of the ones that were hit by a bow and arrow died, and eleven percent hit by cars died. Yeah, yeah. So I think I got it right now. Um, of the ones that were hit but not recovered, right? Other yeah. ones hit. You know, still ones that were probably definitely ones that were hit, not recovered, and died. From the wound, but you know, that that happens too. Doug, yeah. what are you raising your hand about? Man, there are so many things, and it was, uh, first one is well, we know guns kill more is a more effective way of killing deer than bows are. Maybe not on well, yeah, on an individual basis because we kill way more deer in a much shorter time. Way more people well, doing it. Yeah, more more people doing it and greater range and more shots. Uh, well, 
Um, I, I know you're right about deer uh, um, going on with arrows in them because over the years I've killed at least a half a dozen with a rifle that are carrying a that have got a wound from a bow or have a arrow in them or, or whatever. Um, and those were, I guess those were, the, there was a, another point, but I don't remember what it was now because you went off on another thing. That I, that <laughs> That's I, my that fault. That it was trailing. No, yeah, well, of course it was your fault. Uh, oh, I know what it was. It's interesting to me, uh, the comparison, one of the things about bows, and you're talking about vertical bows, I think, because one of the arguments now that I'm hearing against crossbows from some vertical bow people is, oh, these guys are taking shots that they shouldn't take, and they're wounding deer, and it's sort of like the opposite argument of gun, you know, some gun hunters, um, and and vertical bows, you know, wounding and uh, and that sort of thing. So it's just it's it's just interesting how all these things to me, you know, meld together, and then you make your own choices on it and i i'm, I'm is that is that, a, is that crossbow lingo now to say vertical bows yeah 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 oh yeah yeah it's because vertical sure yeah because we in wisconsin we keep fighting about it so they kind of find a way to, to distinguish the two and so they're well, i'd say bows and crossbows, and crossbows yeah <laughs> vertical bows come on Dug well, it out. <laughs> crossbow vertical bow and and it's a it's a thing right i just now. feel that that word came from the crossbow community it didn't come from the bow community no it's from a clarific well i yeah i don't know either but it just it is it's important to clarify because otherwise yeah a bow a bow right but a bow (laughs) versus a cross i mean a crossbow is a bow well, let's, let's not go on, go on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, say that for but a different you know, podcast. It, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And the thing I think I'd say there too, though, that in this in this um, naval weapon station research, they looked at crossbows too. Oh, they did. And it, and it wasn't. I think I think they actually they, they came out a little bit, little bit better on that. And one of the more fascinating parts of that study was that the um, expandable broadheads actually performed better than the, the standard um, injection or you know we put your blades in like fixed a muzzy fixed blade. Well, then I've told you fixed blade because fixed blade in my mind is still the ones you sharpen yourself. But the replaceable blades. Yeah, you'll break replaceable it down. Replaceable blades. <laughs> yeah, yeah, replaceable blades. I, I, st- I still like replaceable blades just because I don't like the the questioning and the worrying about will that thing open the way it's supposed to. But in the study that did in Maryland, it, th- those actually came out came out better for um, more, more effective overall. Expandables. Expandables did. And I think that's one of the things they, I know that's one of the things they say about shooting the crossbow is to use an expandable blade. Yeah, and then, then you get into a, make sure they don't fly open when they get shot down the bow because there's such an explosion coming out of those things compared to a regular bow. But, um, Just the air resistance. Yeah, well, it, plus it's such a hard impact coming out oh. of that, that 160, like, you know, those are 165 pound of, you know, yeah. draw weights there shooting those those arrows out so um but see like now and see like getting back to the elk point of view that's where you and i still want to agree because i think well i've seen guys out out in the west get these real flyers on elk you know long hell of a long ways off and and i think you're starting to change my mind damn if those guys know (laughs) if they they're hitting these big these these are big animals and they can, God, they can take a pounding and not even show it, you know. And but, but you know, I like the fact that at least in our modern era of hunting, that we're talking about these things and trying to figure out what's what's ethical, what's an ethical shot. And that one of the things I had fun though when I was at Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine back in the '90s, we actually did a, did a, a poll on this, trying to figure out from our readers, you know, what's what's um an effective range for the bow and arrow. 
in your mind, what, what's, what do you feel comfortable shooting at? And the thing that was always interesting was that everyone's this perfectly conscientious ethical hunter when that deer is at less than 40 yards of the bow and arrow and less than, let's say, 200 yards of the rifle. As soon as you start putting the big antlers on them, the lead's in the air. The oh, arrows. totally, man. I yeah. have the same exact problem. Yeah, and I, I, so I always think, well, you know, I brought a couple of quotes here that where we like to think we're making progress in our, in our approach on how we, you know, on shot selection. And, you know, Steve, Steve will probably know this one. Who, who wrote this? It is a good rule always to try to get as near the game as possible. At the same time, I am a great believer in powder burning. And if I cannot get near, I will generally try a shot anyhow if there's any chance of the rifle carrying it to it. Yanni O'Connor. <laughs> no. Anyone want to guess? Elder Leopold. Close, but not. Well, Leopold. I got, I got that one, too. Do you know about him? I, I got that one, too. Do you know about him? That's my next quote. Okay. Um, Yanni. Who would be left? I don't know. Elmer Keith. Teddy Roosevelt. Ah, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. Big believer in powder burning. Shoot Big, to get hot, yeah. shoot yeah. to stay hot. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 oh, Teddy. But he was from that. He was from that. Yeah. Well, he was era he, of just getting the lead out. Yeah, and, and the idea that well, if you don't shoot, you certainly won't get it. Hornaday too. Yeah, yeah. When you read about Hornaday's expeditions, oh, because when he was doing museum collecting, yeah, yeah. still he's like he's museum collecting, but they would just kind of get where they're in the ballpark, and everybody just starts a cracking. Yeah, yeah. There's something to be said, I think, right now in this conversation about the sake of being, of getting close or just being 100% on your shot, not because of the ethics, but because you want to be efficient and just be a good hunter. And even though there's like, say, giant antlers, right? But if you're a poor hunter, that's, I think, when you're like, I'm going to let some lead fly because this is my one opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think if you've achieved a certain level of hunting prowess, you will say it is too far. Either I will get closer now so that I know 100% when I shoot, I'm going to kill that thing, or I will let it back walk and I will return tomorrow and you know change my position, my tactics or whatever to mm-hmm. get closer. You know what I mean? I think, yeah. And there's a certain point where hunters you know, don't just let lead fly because you know, whatever, ethics out the window. Like you said, we're the only ones that think about that. If you're just trying to be like the best hunter out there, at some point, you, you're just going to say, no, I, I, to be successful, I can't shoot right now. Yeah, I think there's, there's an element of ethics. There's an element of aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And there's an element of pragmatism. Being that mm-hmm. uh, I would like, yeah, if I, I, I like to think that it bothers most people that you would cripple something up and not find it. So you'd want to be eliminating that. Um, any self-respecting person, right, wants to be good at what they do and that they put their mind to something and become good at it. A strong marker of you not being good at it is that you wound stuff and it runs off when you're supposed to be killing it. Mm-hmm. And then pragmatism is like you want to get the thing. So if you're looking at, man, I could take a poke at 500 yards of my rifle. I don't know if I'll get it or not. Um, I'm going to get to where I know I'm going to get this thing. And I know damn sure I'm going to kill it at two. But it takes a level of experience to be able to, in that moment, make that decision. To make all those decisions. I think when people let the flyers go, when people just start blouching for no reason, is when uh, they probably can't see their way through to getting closer. 
Maybe, perhaps. Yeah. Well, another quote I wanted to share with you guys. Um, this is from about that same era, a little bit later. But um, one large whitetail looked at me at 70 yards. He jumped at the flash of my bow. My arrow stuck in the ground on a second jump. If he had stood still, I would have hit him in the neck. This is this was written in 1927. Aldo Leopold. Aldo Leopold. Yeah. 70 yards. 70 yards. He took a poke at 100 yards of his bow. Yeah, yeah. That's taking a poke, too. And, and so like, <laughs> that's, that, that's like trad archery. Well, see, and see that's, that's the thing. I, I'm, not, I'm not taking cheap shots at these two guys because I think we had these discussions. I know the honest and I have talked about in Doug's backyard. Um, I know they're a guy. I know my, my capabilities. I know at 60 yards of bow and arrow, I start falling apart. Some days I'll be out there. I can drop him in pretty nice at 60 yards. Next day I can't. So I know that's not, for me, a, a realistic range. But I do know guys who can time in and time out, nail 100-yard shots the bow and arrow. But I still will always say, you're still counting on that deer to be standing there and assuming you have a wide-open shot yeah. while that arrow arcs. And, and like I don't know what it is on a, on a, on a compound bow today shooting a 75-pound pound cross compound bow. But I do know on the crossbow, I saw it the other day, where at 100 yards, a typical crossbow has to arc at 92 inches above the, the sight plane to drop it into 100 yards. And I think some of these guys make all these outlandish claims about how accurate those crossbows are. I think... I don't know. I just have a hard time believing most guys using the crossbow can get those kind of shots to drop in there and, and, and learn fairly quickly. That's not realistic. Because I think we, Steve and I had a little conversation, just a quick question. I don't think Steve got back to me on it. But I get, I get fascinated with elk hunting because I think I, when I've been elk hunting, I can see where you'd have more wounding loss than what I have gotten used to hunting deer from a tree stand. Because hunting deer from a tree stand, you're typically getting them in there at tight quarters. And I think nothing, very few things I've ever killed go down faster than a, a, a broadhead through the lungs at 20 yards. I mean, that's just deadly effective. But I think when I started elk hunting back in 2005 with the bow and arrow, nothing is, nothing is fixed. You know, you get used to that tree stand situation where you can control your shots, you can control what, where you're going to shoot, all those kind of things you can start controlling a little bit. These through discipline, it doesn't happen with elk hunting. You know, it's happening fast. You're, you're on your ground, you're at eye level, the wind changes, there's everything is, is making changes fast. And I realized this is tough shit. This is a lot harder mm-hmm. than anything I've ever done in the whitetail woods. That's where I started thinking. I Last year I killed a, my first elk from a tree stand. And I, and I almost felt like cheating. Because it was so much easier to control that shot than, than it was when I was on, on the ground at eye level trying to pick a spot to the brush on an, on an animal that you're waiting for it, for it to come into a spot where you can stop it quick, get the shot off. I think. What, what were you set up on? I was on a wallow. Okay. You know, early seasons, like the fourth day of the season is Labor Day weekend. National Forest. Like National public, Forest, public, yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and that just got me thinking, though, that. What time of day did that bull show up? Uh, I think I shot him at around 6 o'clock in the evening, 5, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. Came in the wallow. Came in the wallow. By yeah. himself? Yep. yep. Uh-huh. And he just stood there. That's interesting. Perfectly. Um, not quite broadside, but he just turned a little bit, gave me a perfect, you know, right right down the pipe, you know, 18 how, how yards. Yard, 18, 18 yards. Really? And then, then he he jumped up, went up the hill about 40 yards, and poof, down. 
Was that wallow when you found that wallow? Was it muddied up? Um, a little bit, but what was interesting, this is one of the fascinating things I loved about that experience was that he never actually made it to the wallow itself. He stopped me 15 yards uphill in this little, just muddy, little bitty seepage type stuff coming up. And he sat through his nose right down that mud. And you could just hear the, of him sucking the water out. There's little, little bitty rivulets coming down that, that <laughs> mountainside. That's interesting. And it was just fascinating as hell. And then he'd just stand there and look around and be his face me the whole time. And finally, he just turned a little bit, gave me the, the open, you know, side shot. And I, but compared to hunting off the ground, like I said, I almost felt like, oh, God. And then I actually had guys. Well, yeah, here's the problem. Though. Yeah, go ahead. There is no problem. Because it might have felt easy, but look at the amount of, I mean, you did a good bit of woodsmanship oh, to definitely. get in the situation. Yeah, definitely. You went out, identified oh, an active wallow. Oh, make, make, make no mistake, I do not feel guilty. I mean, I, I, mean, I say that. I'd say it felt like, oh, geez, that was so easy. But but I know damn well it wasn't because that was like 12 years in the making. Yeah. You know, you know to get that where I've actually found a spot, you could actually feel confident mm-hmm. putting a tree stand up and going to trouble putting a tree stand up on this area we hunt. It's you know, kind of, I didn't, didn't think about it in most cases. It's just such a waste of time. Mm-hmm. You know, elk are so unpredictable. They're moving here and there. And uh, here we found one yeah, spot. Yeah, you put your tree stand up. And you just, oh, you'll see yeah, nothing. It's like... <laughs> It's, you know, it's possible that there's no elk within two miles. Yeah, yeah. Three miles. And and so I, I just find all those kind of discussions of, of shot selection, how we do setups, all that kind of stuff interesting. And then I get then you get into the thing you're talking about with air, like the, that bull walking around with that arrow wound. You think, well, was he really suffering the whole time or not? I mean, that, that thing wound that healed over and how much, I mean, it can't feel good. But then you read this, some of the research that's done on, on humans and how humans react to, to you know, like soldiers in, in, in um, battle. And there's this, some really fascinating research from Anzio, where your dad served, where they, um, this doctor was keeping notes on these guys that were wounded. You know, how much, how much pain are you in? And they found a lot of cases that um, 70, 70%, excuse me, 70% of these guys had just awful wounds and they barely felt it because it wasn't a shock because he, he could talk to these guys Ask them, what are you feeling mm-hmm. doing this kind of stuff? But it was not the kind of bad pain that you'd expect. And then um, they learned, too, that some of these guys who were manic, who just just wild with um, apparent pain, they could calm them down with, with, an, with a, a drug that would make them sleepy, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and what, it's, what they started to... Started to think and, and figure out was it wasn't so much the pain that was was hard on these guys. It was the, the anguish, the mm-hmm. dread that what they're like. You know the Clint Eastwood movie, um, The Unforgiven. You know, hell of a thing, killing man. You're taking away all of your had and all you ever will have. Yep. And humans understand that. You know, yeah. you know they're 18 years old, knowing that this is probably going to kill them, and they're just. It has to be just devastating to them. So, so that's where I always try to balance all stuff as I'm hunting, thinking, let's not let's not tear, tie ourselves in knots over this. You know, we want to be good ethical hunters, but let's realize that the, the wilds is a tough place to live, and these animals suffer a lot of stuff that you know. But humans do too. Humans are awful tough too. So I don't know. I, I find a lot of stuff fascinating. Hmm. Pick up the tree stand thing because you later had an interaction with someone about your tree yeah. stand elk. Yeah. So I, I so I one of the reasons I emailed Steve was um, this guy um, writes back to me and then he actually says to me he tried to make me feel a little bit guilty about using a tree stand to kill an elk, and he says to me, "Well, what do you think Steve Ranella would think?" 
And I, <laughs> I, said, I, 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 I don't know. I'll ask you. Well, well, <laughs> but but my first reaction was, well, I don't claim to, to know to know Steve as well as I know um, other friends in my life, but I think Rinald strikes me as a practical guy that. If you put your time in and you find a find a good spot and you want to hunt it that way, go for it. Yeah, dude. I'm my, my okay. My brother has he's got an idea of the hunt purity score. Okay, so it allows like uh, it allows you to to have many to 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 factor in many different variables. Yeah, just to then arrive at a fixed score, and you can have twenty inputs and do a hunt purity score. So when I run your situation through my hunt, my personal hunt purity score calculator, yeah, uh, unguided, okay. Right. So you're just out there, dude, out there on his own, yep, not relying on a guide because you have a guy to like, oh yeah, I killed it, we bugled a bull in and shot him, but the guide did everything, and he probably would have shot the thing better than you did too. You were, if anything, you were a hindrance on the whole process, mm-hmm. right? You were the trigger man, yeah. So that's not the case, okay. Not that you can't still, you could have a guide and still score a great hunt purity oh, score yep. as you put in all the factors that go into a hunt purity score. Right? It's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's like just one of, what, what, what's your problem? Why are you giving me the Latvian smirk? <laughs> no, I'm just enjoying this, oh. the hunt purity score, if there was such a thing. <laughs> so, and it, each, each, and each to his own, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when I'm running Pat Durkin's, when I'm, when I'm giving a hunt purity score to Pat Durkin's tree stand elk, I'm, this is what I'm thinking about. Self-guided, mm-hmm. public land. Mm-hmm. Now, public land. Not that you can't have a great hunt purity score on private land. Done a lot of it myself, but in the hunt purity score calculator, that score is high because here you are dealing with a lot of competition, things outside of your control. So mm-hmm. it's it's like an added difficulty, right? Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits is not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual 
with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Um, a little bit of woodsmanship. There's a lot of wallows out there. There are more wallows out there that are not going to be visited by a bull tonight than there are wallows. What the hell are you smirking about, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, I, I, I just feel like I need to keep my face down. And not Listen, make... there are more wallows. <laughs> there are more wallows in the woods that, what, what was the date you killed this bull? September. Um, September 4th. Okay. There are more, go, September 4th. Go to the, the state Pat was in and go have a monitor, get a volunteer to sit on every single wallow in that state. And more than, than, than there's going to be more people whose wallow doesn't get hit by an elk that night than does. Definitely. So he had to pick a good, the, the pick the right wallow. Here he is, self guided in a place you hunted a little bit, mm-hmm. finds a wallow, determines that this is, the, this is where I'm going to stake my claim. Presumably, you had to tote that tree stand through a lot of uncomfortable oh, yeah. toting yeah. areas. On a, on a hot day. On a hot day. So there's your hunt purity score climbs up. Mm-hmm. Now, you had to pick where you're going to hang this stand. Factoring in wind, not just wind, yep. but how the wind is going to change mm-hmm. as the thermal shift, as the air starts to cool, as the sun begins to set. Mm-hmm. So Pat's running all this shit in his head as his hunt purity score climbs. Like, I just, like, nowhere in it, there's nowhere in it where I'm looking, I'm like, man, that's a real shrinker. (laughs) 
a real hunt purity score shrinker. Yeah. The bow and arrow gives it a higher hunt purity score. In my personal estimation, that gives it a higher hunt purity score than if it were a fire. You use a trad bow versus a uh, higher hunt purity score. I I can say so. When done, yeah. If you made your own arrows and and napped your own heads, higher 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 hunt purity score. Many things go into a hunt period. You could have, you could make your own bow, make your own string, make your own arrow shafts, nap your own head. You all you make your own hunting clothes. Find a roadkill turkey, make your own fletching, and still have a real low hunt purity score, depending on the other sure. inputs. So that in and of itself, right? But like the hunt you're describing to me is has is very pure. Yeah, I like the sounds of it. Thank you. So and we packed it ourselves. It was a great story to read too. I really enjoyed those those uh, columns about it. Yeah, it was great. And and. You kept your nerves. Oh, definitely. Because you know yeah. what? Oftentimes, when something's coming in, you don't get calmer. No. not Especially not with the elk. Sometimes it's almost beneficial to have something happen fast. Yeah, and this one actually played out over about five minutes where he came in. I thought I was going to nail him right away, and then he came in, came right to me straight on. Just when I'm right there, he just shoot, he turns and walks right straight at me. And then I, I had to let down twice, and... It's just a fun experience. Mm. You know another thing I factor in? A lot of people probably don't, but I do. Whether it was aware of you or not. Yeah, he, he had no idea I was there. That counts a lot in my personal uh-huh. hunt purity calculator. Yeah. yeah. I'm interested about the uh, tree stand setup relative to the wall of downhill because you're playing a downhill thermal. No. You know, I, I looked into everything around it to figure out where I, where I could put up a stand and have a decent chance. And I ended up having to go up uphill from that wallow. And knowing that as the thermals start dropping, if anything's coming down from below, I'm, I'm not going to have a chance. Yeah. Know, it'll just be going down. And that was my fear is that, you know, if they come from downhill, where I think they're going to come from, most likely, or all I could hope is it's going to be up on the side hill more or across the way more and filter through that area. But the thing is, too, I sometimes I... When I'm hunting whitetails, too, some of those situations, you can't always predict where they're going to come from. You think you can, but then, and in this case, the bull came exactly from where I did not expect him. Hmm. He was uphill from me, and I, I heard a twig snap, and then he looked up, and here's this bull. Oh, shit, there's a bull. Yeah. And, and, and I haven't had buck fever like that in, in a long time. Where Even though I've been elk hunting a lot and had a lot of encounters, that one just really had me jacked up. And then by the time I got where I could shoot, though, I was... I wasn't calm. I mean, that the heart's still hammering. But uh, it was, I I will always make a point, like at trade shows, if I see, like, um, I've seen, like, Tiffany Lukoski make some hella, hella good shots uh, on, on deer, caribou, and elk. And I walked up to her one time, and I said, you know, I know you take a lot of shit from people, because, you know, she's a pretty young, pretty girl, blonde girl. I think sometimes she'd, um, comes across ditzy to some people, but you watch some of the shots that girl's made on TV. I think that girl's got some blood, some real ice in her veins. Where because I've seen guys blow those kind of shots. Gotcha. Yeah, you know, and I so I respect that because I think that to pull off a shot like that, especially with a camera over your over your back, and knowing what's on on on, you know, basically what's what's at, at stake here, and you're on make a big investment on a hunt like that and the time involved then you pulled off i think that's commendable i i respect that because i know I've, I've blown those kind of shots i mean who hasn't and 
So anyway, so like I made that shot that night, and that bull piled up, you know, like you know, forty yards away. I watched the whole thing. Damn, I felt good. Yeah, you know? and those kind of moments, just you know, I think uh, that's why we're out here. And I, mm-hmm. I'll never. That's why I said I, I. I make the comment that I um, felt a little guilty because it seemed so easy. But I think yeah, it's not really like guilty. Just that you know, it's not really easy. You, you know, you know better. You know how hard it is to get those shots and know get those situations that work out and how many situations don't work out oh yeah when you're out there just getting ground down by the situations that don't work out when something does work really good it's almost like you feel like you've stepped into like you've walked into a hallucination yeah that you're hallucinating that it worked yeah it's that surprising yeah you mean like i actually just got close to that elk and ran an arrow through its lungs and Mm -hmm. it fell over dead it's more plausible that i'm hallucinating right now (laughs) than that that just happened yeah um We've been talking about thermals. I want to explain it real because I feel like some people might not get what we're talking about. So when you're thermals happen when you're in, I mean, you can you can have thermals without topography, but I think you kind of bank on in 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 mountainous country is that you know warm air rises. So I'm not telling you this, Pat. I'm just telling Mm -hmm. Joe Blow out there. Warm air rises, so. In the morning when the sun starts to come up and the day starts to heat up, you're generally going to wind up having uphill winds. And then in the evening as the sun sets and the air cools, you're going to have, you, you know, it's going to switch. Sometimes we would get set up where we're going to do a stalk on an animal and you'll just sit around and wait, depending on where it is and how, the best approach. You'll sit around and wait for when the thermal shift. Because you'll know that at some point today, I know that like at whatever time, you know, whatever time it happened the night before or whenever the evening sets on, that the wind's going to shift possibly to the point that it overrides the normal predominant wind direction. But sometimes you can just have like so much wind, if there's a weather pattern moving through or whatever, you can have so much wind that that sort of natural wind, not natural, that's not the right word for it, but just that, that general wind direction conspires with the thermals to just make swirling air, which is very frustrating when it's not up or down. It's just everywhere. Yeah. We live and died by the thermals when I got it in Colorado in a, a particular spot, which is kind of a good example of the morning hunt. Because in the morning, too, you usually have a downhill thermal, you know, just because it's like, you know, how it's like the coldest right at sunrise or whatever. Oh, I mean, right at 30, daybreak. 30 minutes yeah. before sunrise. It's, you know, coldest part, maybe. So you got that downhill thermal. But we had this knob that you could kind of sit on, and it was, I don't know, at least a 1,000 feet down to this hay field, and these elk would be out in this hay field, you know, and we actually couldn't hunt out there, so which is one of the reasons we hadn't just, you know, gone and ambushed them down there. But they would be coming towards us, you know, as it got light and coming up onto that hill. But thermal's, like, right at your back. So you'd have to sit there and wait and wait and wait and wait and wait, and they'd be screaming and ripping, and you're just, like, sitting there with your puffer, just watching it, watching it, and just hoping for the day to warm up before <laughs> they quit bugling. And so many times, I mean, you'd wait sometimes till eight thirty nine. I mean, you've been sitting up there for two-plus hours, and then finally you just, like, you start feeling that constant, you know, uphill thermal, and we would just bail off that hill, you know, hmm try not to break a leg as we ran down in there, you know, and then we start calling. But yeah, you mentioned the, some places have so much wind that when I went to the guy in North park for a year, it's just a windy part of Colorado, like up there by uh, Walden 
And I remember like halfway through the elk season being like, I, I seriously haven't used my Winchester or thought about a thermal for a month hmm. because it was just constant. Like every day you're just like, oh, the wind's out of the east. It's going to be out of the east all day. You know, huh. we never thought about thermals there. I'll tell you another good thermals trick is a creek. Well, uh, you know, a creek yeah. will in the daytime cool the air above it. And you could have a wind direction going some direction or another. You drop down into a creek bed, and you'll find that it's a downwind, that there's a strong downwind current created by that water. Hmm. And you can creep up creek beds or streams that are flowing and be the whole time in nose hitting you, like wind hitting you in the face Hmm. as you go upstream, even though the wind is different 100 yards up the hill. I was once creeping up a creek on the north side of it in the timber, probably a foot to 18 inches of snow, powdery snow, silent as can be, and I'm probably 50 yards above the bottom of the creek. And we're trying to catch up these elk that are feeding in the quakies on the south-facing slope, pretty narrow canyon. And we're working our way up it. We get to the elk. We get all the way so we're exactly um, you know, parallel to them. And I'm feeling the wind. We got just a nice downhill thermal. And we're just like, there's no clear shots, but there's like 20 cows up there. And we're just waiting for a good shot. And all of a sudden I see a couple noses pop up, you know, I'm like, what? There's no way, you know, I'm like, hmm. it is like, we're freezing here. I can just feel it going down towards yeah. the creek. And eventually they bust. Three hours later, I think we killed a cow. But I think what actually happened is that the thermal came down, pushed our scent to the creek bottom. And then instead of just keeping flowing down the creek, it must have just gotten onto that warm hillside mm. that the sun was hitting, the south facing slope. And that carried it up. And it carried it up right to him. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, you the will get, yeah, yeah, you will sometimes have stuff with you where you just can't understand how it whiffed you. Yeah. And it's, yeah, stuff like that probably. And then even argues. Well, I'll be like, who moved? Who moved? <laughs> <laughs> Someone moved. Well, like, no, well, they moved. Well, you know, well, then it wouldn't have spooked. <laughs> it, 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 I've seen it done where, like, Bob Fulcrod used to do these demonstrations with, with air currents where he'd use a, a smoke bomb mm-hmm. and, you know, to show how the, the wind, you think it's going this way. Like, well, it goes that way for a while, and then it just starts yeah. moving, moving off again. So. Hmm. Hard, hard to play that stuff. Pat, tell me why the old-time traditional deer camps are disappearing. That, that's been one that I've, um, you know, being the sentimental sap I am, I always think that's how how deer hunting should be, where you pull into a camp for um, basically the whole nine-day season like they used to do. You know, in Wisconsin, they used to take trains up north. And what's happened is that um, we made travel, I think, a big factor. There's many factors, of course, but one of the big factors is that travel is so convenient you can now hop in your car anywhere in Wisconsin, basically be up north in five hours, and then you can hit, be back home uh, Sunday evening really easily. It's not not a big trip anymore. Even when I was a kid in the 70s going deer hunting, only, only highways going north in Wisconsin were all two-lane highways. And so uh, a trip up north was a, it was kind of an endurance thing. You just kind of ride along in those two-lane highways waiting to pass people all the time. And it was just, so when you got up there, you're in no hurry to come back. You you want to stay up there a while. And you think, well, if that's how it was in the 70s, can you imagine what it was like back in the 40s and 50s where guys would have to drive up there and not always be able to even get down the road to their camp? You know, they'd have to get the neighbor to get a tractor and take them down and haul them in. And so I think that's a big factor that, you know, in our our society we have now with a great transportation, really reliable vehicles, 
people just don't have to go in and spend that kind of time in the camp. And, and then you have the other factors going on in, in recent decades is that, well, the old guys, um, it was worth going up north in, in northern Wisconsin, northern Michigan, and northern Minnesota because uh, it was good deer hunting. Well, it's gotten tougher. You know, the, the forest matured, and we have all these factors like that where you're not, not seeing as many deer. And yeah, well, look at the, the case of our very own Doug Dern. Exactly. Yep. Doug, when, he, when, when correct me if I'm wrong, Doug. You can I speak. certainly will. You can speak. <laughs> Doug was a boy. His old man went to Northern Deer Camp. That's right. Yeah. Around the farm, if you saw a deer, you talked about it. Yeah. That's right. You're like, holy shit, we saw a deer. Yeah. And everyone for deer season drove up. Now, you got how many deer per square, whatever? More than 75 yeah. per square mile of habitat. And how? And what's the what's the what's the stocking or the the the, the ratio of deer per uh, unit of land in the Northwoods? Uh, much, much lower. Yeah. yeah the, the, I mean, it, you, so the deer came to you. You don't need to go to the deer. I'm well, a deer magnet. Well, well, <laughs> well, last time you guys were down at Doug's in 2015, I think it was right yeah. gun season. Um, I killed a nice buck that year down about 10 miles from Doug's place on my uncle's farm, and the only reason I'm telling that is because. When I drove over to the taxidermist to get get um, the, the lymph nodes taken out for the CWD testing, I I missed the turn, couldn't find the, the place, and I stopped a hunter on the road who was just getting ready to walk down into this field. Got talking to him. Well, he's from Hayward, Wisconsin, which is way up north. And the reason he's down in Doug's backyard basically is because the deer hunting up in Hayward sucks. He's driving south. He, to deer he drove camp. all yeah. the way. Yeah, Complete he, reversal. The, man. The, 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 the hunt a public piece of property over in the Bear Valley. Bear area. Valley. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's what's happened, you know, between the, the, the switch in the habitat where the, the habitat down in southern Wisconsin favors a deer more than up north. And you have, it's, it's you know, the guys who still hunt up there, they typically aren't going in for um, five days, Thanksgiving. It used to be a real thing where you'd go up there and you'd arrive on Friday before gun season, set up camp, and you wouldn't come back till the following weekend or, or Sunday night. And people were logging the Northwoods oh, back yeah, then. Much, yeah. much more logging, much more logging back then. Now the logging isn't, isn't keeping up with the forest maturation. So the forests keep getting older and older and older and less deer habitat. And, and so I'm never surprised. Less when I, grouse habitat, less, less grouse, woodcock yeah. habitat. Yeah, all those things factor in. If there's good if deer, if deer are thriving, grouse are usually thriving, you know, and those areas are just tougher now. So I, I think those, the, those two factors, I think are probably the biggest reasons. And plus I think there's just a lot of people just don't like having um, a faraway camp to take care of, you know, it's a lot of maintenance on a, on any kind of building. Once you once you put a building on a land three hundred miles away, you got to be yeah. up there a lot taking care of it. And people, I think people like my generation, at least me, I, I don't like care to take be taking care of stuff all the time. Hmm. I'd rather just you know show up someplace and I, I sleep all the I I rather sleep all the back of my truck than maintain a shack year round, you know, for deer hunting. Yeah, that's just the way I am. Well, and hunting's changed too. I mean, you know increase in bow hunting and um you know up north down by us whatever and there's a i mean there's always that talk about the loss of um more of loss of deer hunters fewer deer licenses being sold but yet there's an increase in bow licenses so it's just changing Mm -hmm. and the style of hunting is changing and yeah there's no you don't do the community deer drives like we used to do and that used to be a big thing up north used to drive along those those rural roads in northern wisconsin see lines of people lined up waiting to go in and do a big push, and you, just, you know we just don't hunt that way much anymore. 
But you lament it. Oh, I do, just because I, I think uh, it was a cool time. And I, I, um, I still do a, a series um, going on almost 10 years now where I travel around to different parts of the country and visit deer camps. Because I think, well, I like to document it while it's still around. You know, whether it's northern Wisconsin, northern Minnesota, I'd go down south to visit some of their deer camps. Because even down there, it's not not that easy to maintain those traditions for a long for a long time. You know, you know, to, to go generation after generation and maintain that hunting interest. I just use my my own family as an example. I think, well, my dad hunted a little bit just to get me going, but. He dropped out, you know, about the time I was coming along, where he was, really wasn't active hunting anymore. But out of my four brothers, out of me and my three brothers, I'm the only one that hunts. And I think a lot of people in our generation just don't, don't have the interest. And I, I look at our hunter, hunter demographics, and that's not looking all that great for the future. So you think that's yeah, a part of Americana that's kind of slipping away on us. In some areas. In some areas. Yeah. And, and, and Are they like in the... You know, in the Midwest, the old idea that you had these sort of unsettled wild lands mm-hmm. in the north, like we grew up in just like a thing you heard all the time, up north, up north, yeah. up north. Like everyone went, like in Michigan, you didn't do any cross movement. You didn't know like east-west movement. Yeah. All movement was, was north-south. Yeah, He's like, drove that direction. If you wanted to get into something, you drove north if you wanted to get yeah. into something good. You drove south to get back home. Eyes were always to the north. Yeah. And the first g- time when I left home, I went north, whatever, 100 miles, huh. hundreds of miles, and set up shop up there. Yeah. Uh, one last question for you. Mm-hmm. You uh, were putting to me, is it is it socially acceptable, morally acceptable to schedule a wedding on opening weekend of deer season. <laughs> yeah, and and my take being a <laughs> being a, the Wisconsin chauvinist I am, and knowing that Wisconsin deer hunting deer season, everyone knows everyone knows when deer season is in Wisconsin. And if you don't know, you really you really I have to wonder about you. How can you not be Living aware in a of bubble? Yeah, this is a this is a big thing in Wisconsin. You cannot miss all the blaze orange going usually north, even though you know people are going east and west too. But there's you cannot you cannot miss all the blaze orange in the road before our gun season opens. And then think just at work, how many people get around and work who are talking about deer hunting? Husbands going deer hunting, girl girlfriends going with their boyfriends, that kind of stuff. And so I think when you know this is this this is a once a year event. Pretty much most people have in Wisconsin anyway. My 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 friend Tom Herberline always had the comment in his research on um, hunters in Wisconsin that in Wisconsin you're either you either are a deer hunter or you're sleeping with a deer hunter because and he didn't mean just in one bed, but he meant throughout the household. There's yeah. a, there's always someone in the house who hunts. So I think having all that awareness of deer hunting, especially our gun season. How can you possibly justify having a wedding opening week in a gun season? You, you know you're going to affect the lives of a lot of people who are either going to skip your wedding or, or be real, really resentful that you <laughs> dragged them out of the woods for your wedding that you could have scheduled 51 other weekends. Why, why, why would you do that? Yeah. And, and, and I, there's, there's a reason I got married in mid-July. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's I think personally, that's respectful of other people's time. And I haven't screwed up. I haven't yet screwed up majorly on children's birth dates. 
I got one May 9 in there that is difficult. It's difficult. Mm-hmm. But none of them were uh, by uh, by planning. That one, we were pretty much planning out. And I'm like, at least it wasn't the fall. I got a May 9 in there, and his mother likes him to be around home on his birthday. His mother doesn't want him to be off doing whatever. Um, I want to be there. It's it just it's that, that, that wasn't great. It wasn't great, but it wasn't horrible. There might come a time, though, where he gets to make that decision to say, you know what, I'd really like to be out at Uncle Doug's turkey hunting on my birthday. Listen, Can we go, I had please? that conversation this year. We were going to go turkey hunting, but it's like in my family, I, this didn't come for me, in my family and the powers that be within that family, there seems to be this thing where everyone's all together on birthdays. Hmm. Yeah, cause I know. So it's like the, the calendar starts to get really crowded. Hold your thought, Doug. The calendar starts to get really crowded when you have, like I do, I have three kids. So there's three, you only got 365 days out of the year. There's three of them. You get a uh, spouse birthday, an anniversary, handful of religious holidays. It's like, if I could do it all over again, I would have just gotten married on Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and then... Married a girl who's born on Christmas. Find a girl, yeah. Find a girl's like birthdays around Christmas, get married on Christmas, and then try to impregnate her <laughs> <laughs> routinely nine months Prior. before Christmas. Doug, you have a family story about this. I have three things that come to mind about it. One, my Uncle Ralph uh, Zelinsky, who was one of my dad's uh, hunting buddies up north when they used to go up north, and the guy who I first heard the word mooching from, got married on opening weekend. My dad never forgave him. Ralph is now 93 years old. My dad's dead. <laughs> my dad went to his grave still pissed off about that. Uh why? Why did he get married on opening weekend? I think it was a power thing. With the, I, I shouldn't say it because they're both still alive and they might listen to this. I don't know. I don't know why. What the hell? That's all my dad's. What the hell's the matter with him? That's all my dad said. Uh, last year, my nephew, Sam, who you all know, has, and I'm happy to say his name, <clears throat> uh, had a new girlfriend. They'd been going out for about three or four months, and he calls me up about, Three weeks before <laughs> opening weekend, he goes, hey, Uncle Doug, I'm, I'm, so I'm not going to be there opening weekend. And I said, why not? He goes, well, Kara's family has a wedding out in New Jersey, and I said I'd go along, and I didn't realize it was opening weekend, but now I committed to it, so i got to go. I said, kid, there's two things wrong with that. <laughs> First one is, chances are, a year from now, she's not going to be your girlfriend. Yeah. So you just gave up an opening weekend for somebody you're not, you're no longer with. Or you are still together. You get married. And you set an awful and precedent. Awful oh. precedent. Uh, so I've then, seen a lot of guys really screw themselves in the <laughs> in the courtship phase by giving up liberties that they think they're going to somehow get back later. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You need to. Yeah. I tell people, I don't care if you need to drive down the road and sleep in a car. Act like you have shit to do <laughs> <laughs> when you start dating someone. Yeah. Just yeah. to set the scene. Yeah. yeah. But you haven't told the story I want you to tell. Uh, which one was that? About Didn't your old man? Oh, oh, my brother. So my, <laughs> mom's, my mom is pregnant, and the due date 
and I, there wasn't a whole lot of planning from what I could tell when, <laughs> when, when we were conceived. Uh, and, and my, and my dad was just a, you know, he loved going up north and deer hunting. And, and as it happened, my brother is due like right at the end of, you know, that third week in November. And my father started telling my mom, you better have that kid. <laughs> November 2nd. <laughs> he was born November 2nd. Two weeks later, dad's going north. Yeah. <laughs> Good well, for him. Well, Good for him. <laughs> One of my old newspaper buddies back in the, this is the early 80s, Penny and, I, Penny and I started our family. Our firstborn, Leah, was born in, in January of, of 85. And so she, she we, we, we planned it. You know, we, we made sure that we didn't start all the stuff until we had, you know, and Penny got pregnant right away. So it was January for Leah. Ellie came along in July. The only one we came close to missing on was Carson, our, our, our youngest. And she was born... Right before, uh, well, she's born September twelfth, and this is, and this is before I was out. This is before I was elk hunting. Oh, and so this is you're still white. You're still eastern I, whitetail. I was still eastern whitetail hunting. So and, you thought September was a great month? You yeah, thought it was really it, a hot, yeah, thought, boring oh, month. I thought, oh, we we, get, we slid into home on that one. You know, just really it was close. But um, I, I was telling some guys that worked at you know and they something about um, I can't remember how we got talking about because none of these guys were hunters. But when I mentioned the fact that Penny and I planned. And she wasn't like, wasn't like I was holding a gun to her head. We just talked about, in practical terms, when do you want these kids to arrive? And when we kind of, for my schedule, it worked out better. That if, I'm, if, I'm, if you want me home to help with the kids, it's better if it's outside of hunting. Yeah, season. when to calendar and some lovemaking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, but I mean, that's one guy saying, people like you make me ashamed of the, of the male species, you know. <laughs> God, I couldn't be prouder of you. <laughs> and, and, and I thought, well, hey, if... If my wife understands, this all matters to me. Yeah. I don't give a shit with this oh, guy. Yeah. You know, I thought. No, I I know I missed the mark a little bit on a May Niner because of spring bear and turkey. Mm-hmm. But when you factor in, I also got a mid December and I got a late January. So, yeah. And the late January, which is the best one I got, was accidental. So it's like even when I'm making mistakes, <laughs> even when I'm making mistakes, I'm hitting the right target. Yeah. But, but, what, what do you got, Yanni? Yeah. Well, uh, I'm not really throwing him under the bus, but I missed <laughs> our now good friend Brody's wedding because it was a September wedding. I can't remember exactly when, but my wife had to go with a friend of mine. <laughs> you sent your wife to your buddy's well, yeah, wedding? I was, I was elk hunting. I, it was September. And, and Brody understood, and, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell was Brody getting married then for? I don't, you know, I wish I, I didn't like. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm assuming. Bro, well, I'm assuming I, Brody's listening. Yeah, <laughs> Brody. he will be. <laughs> no, but what are your uh, for 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 uh, throwing offspring? What'd you hit? Oh, um, August seventh, uh, nice. December fifth. So yeah, both. Yeah, good. perfect. Hmm. Good shooting. Nice. De- December fifteenth for me. So yeah, yeah, just one, right in the perfect spot. Yeah, I can't say that that was planned. That was dumb luck. But you start to realize that the odds are it's going to be okay. Because there's more months when it's okay to have a kid than there are when it's not okay to have a kid. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's plenty of room that it uh, figure things out without really causing hard feelings. Yeah. You know, it's, not, it's, not not like, it's not like you're asking the impossible. Yeah. 
you know, it's just to me, it's just being reasonable and realistic. And because, like, when I got married, when we got married, it was December 6th. You know, I was, just saw the Navy, and Penny's mom made it clear that she's not moving to Wisconsin with me unless she's married. And so I looked at my schedule and thought, well, deer season's, you know, <laughs> this. Well, how about two weeks after after deer season? So that's what we did. Yeah. All right, Dougie. Concluders? I was fascinated by the wallow conversation, and you've given Pat so much credit about... Uh, I was pumping them up. Pumping that wallow, finding that wallow, all the woodsmanship that goes along with, pit, you know, all these various places where it might just be. Purity pouring in. And it just reminded me so much of being able to figure out where turkeys roost and hijacking them on the way there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good wood, takes good woodsmanship to find out where a turkey's roost and hide, <laughs> to find out a turkey's roost and then, and then bushwhack him on his way in there. Pat, concluders? Yeah, my concluder is that, um, I know you guys like history, and when I, when I realized we were going to be meeting in La Crosse, it made me think of a, a, a old lieutenant um, named, he, he never lived in old age. I think he died at age 34 in the War of 1812. His name was, you probably know of, Zebulon Pike. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pike's Peak. Pike's Peak. Well, yeah. did you know there's the great two, Western explorer. Did you know there's two Pike's Peak? Nope. There's one just down the road here, just down the river here at, um, in Iowa. Is that one? Yeah. Yeah. You go down to Iowa, 500 feet above, um, right across from Prairie du Chien. And Prairie du Chien is where the Wisconsin River meets the Wisconsin, meets the Mississippi River. Right across from there is a 500 foot bluff. And he named that one Pikes Peak, too. That was the first one he named. Really? Yeah. And yep. then, um, the guy had kind of like a phallic sort of hang up. Yeah, he was, um, yeah. Well, in, in just about 15 years ago, they had like I think it was a centennial over Minnesota, and this guy referred to Zebulon Pike as um, he said something like, "It's 200 years since this exploration he made up the Mississippi, and he's still not Lewis and Clark. He's still basically no, no respect for the guy. And one of the reasons that they don't respect him to this day is because he was one of his missions from from President Jefferson was to find the headwaters of the, of the Mississippi." So he went up in the central Minnesota, north central Minnesota, and, and decided that um, Leech Lake was the headwaters of the Mississippi. Well, of course, time went on, and they realized, no, it's actually to the west a little ways, and it's actually Lake Itasca. So he blew that. But while he's up there, he set his, his, his um, soldiers to work on dugout canoes, because they had, had to keep exploring. So he had to make these dugout canoes. And they're all wondering, why the hell would you make your men make dugout canoes when you have we're among the Chippewa people, the Ojibwe and they make, they're famous for these birch bark canoes, but this guy insisted on his dugouts well they sank, very quickly they sank with all his powder and Zebulon Pike decided, well let's dry the powder out, so he had the guy spread this gunpowder over all these all this, I think probably canvases, whatever cloth they had in those days and then they set it high enough above a fire they thought it was safe, well <laughs> It burned, it burned his tents up. So those tents burn up. He's ruined everything. And this kind of reputation, these kind of things he did, the things he was famous for, these real screw-ups, but at the same time, he had some respect because he was, like, he was a tough he was a tough survivor type guy. He'd be sick and he'd work through sicknesses. And then, but um, his place in history, the people who studied him kind of referred to him as the B team of Lewis and Clark. That he was, yeah. he was not, he was not in their league. See, I didn't know this about. Yeah. I didn't know that Pike was kind of like not slick. Yeah, and he he went 
Jefferson then, after this um, exploration up in this part of the world, Jefferson sent him to explore the the, um, the southern regions of the Louisiana Purchase, you know, because Lewis and Clark were up doing the one in the Northwest. And he went down in the Colorado area. He got to Pikes Peak, what the mountain he named Pikes Peak, out there, and he, he decided he was going to try to try to scale Pikes Peak. Well, it got to be pretty cold, and they gave up that idea, and he he had decided that this this place, this mountain can't be climbed. So they gave up gave up on the idea. Then he start, then he started pushing southward. And I think then his, his mes- messenger his mission was to find the Red River or someplace down there. Okay. Well, he got his troops all lost. They eventually got captured by the Spanish. Um, army, and then, and then apparently, his his people, his his men were thankful that they'd been captured because they finally had somebody in charge that knew what was going on. Well, not lost anymore. Yeah. So then, eventually, they let him let him loose, let him go back. You know, and but he ended up dying not that long after that. He he fought in the War of eighteen twelve, and when they were invading Toronto, he got killed in Toronto at, at age thirty four. But yeah, it was Pike died at thirty four. Age thirty four. Yeah. Jeez, I think Custer was 36 yeah, think, when he it, died. Yeah. I, think I, was, it, I used to yeah. weigh life as like, when I hit 36, and I was like, well, Custer died now. Yeah. That's a way to, it's a, you take stock when yeah. you hear people dying. Yeah, Mozart died at 37. Did he? Yeah. So you think, Zebulon Pike died at 30? 34. He was a general by that time, but he was, you know, yeah, he was dead at 34. God, makes me feel like a do-nothing. And yeah. He sucked at everything. It sounds like. <laughs> well, th- but he had a good publicist, apparently. <laughs> yeah, name big mountains. <laughs> hey, man, uh, you know the story about uh, um, Laramie. Okay, so Laramie's a guy like he's a mountain man. Not even shows up out west, tr- hoping to be a mountain man. Quickly gets killed under. Depending on who you ask, how he got killed, he he might have got killed by some Indians and stuffed down a hole in the ice in the beaver pond. There's different versions of events, but total greenhorn shows up on the scene very quickly is dead, murdered, killed in action, mountain man action, winds up with a town, a mountain range, a peak, a river, and on and on and on for doing shit. Any idea of how he got that kind of, why they picked his name out? I'm guessing it was like, because whatever beaver pond he got stuffed down through the ice and became yeah. laramie river yeah and then just people and, and the name just rolls off your tongue it is a pretty name yeah. Huh. yeah now bridger there's a guy that deserves it yeah and got everything named after him yeah so, so, that, so that's my story from uh this part of the world you know from zebulon pike's um search up here yeah the moral of the story is look for the highest thing you can see around and name it after yourself <laughs> yep so, so there are two Pikes Peaks. Now, yeah, I didn't know about the Wisconsin one. Yeah, well, it's actually Iowa. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, it's right across the river from Prairie du Chien. Laramie Peak. Lar- no. I'm <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Pikes Peak. Pikes Peak, Iowa. Yep. I'm going to climb that one. Yep, 500 feet. <laughs> you can drive right to the top of it. Yeah. Is it 500 yeah, feet? Yeah, we drove, yeah, it's 500 feet, so it's like, what's that? <laughs> one, eight, uh, guy, what's 14 divided by 1,400 divided by five? You know, that's... I can't do that yeah. kind of math. Yeah, I, I was screwed up. So that's it's somewhere south of five hundred. <laughs> <laughs> it is a cool it's, spot, it, though. It's, it's, it's on one twenty eighth, the, the height of Pikes Peak. But but yeah, that's our our, our Pike story. So and he was like, he's like, dude, next time I name a mountain, yeah, <laughs> I'm not doing it like this. Well, <laughs> he he also 
he also apparently picked that spot, Pikes Peak, for an army fort. He he suggested the army they build a fort there. Well, then the army engineers came through years later, looked at, looked things over, and said, "No, Prairie du Chien will do just fine." They're building it up on the on the mountain. They're uh, up on the bluff. They're building it down in that with a confluence of the Wisconsin River and Mississippi River, so they could command the rivers. Yeah, and not to carry their stuff right. so far. Yeah. So he wasn't good at citing forts either. <laughs> His long list of things yeah. he wasn't that good at. <laughs> All right, Doug Dern. No, I know you got, yeah. So I gave I'm just, saying, I'm just saying your name. I like to end <laughs> things by saying names like that. Doug Thanks Dern. for having me. Nice being here. Yeah, if it was the beginning, I'd be like, Doug Dern. But at the end, I'm like, uh, Doug Dern. Doug Dern. And Patrick Durkin. What's Thanks. your middle name, Pat? Edward. P-E-D. 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 Okay. Did you have any closing thoughts no, today? No. Don't have any. Nothing. Yep. I'm spent. All right. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Doug. Well, thanks for having us. This show is sponsored in part by BetterHelp. It is a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that they need and that meets them where they are and helps them get through challenges. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible. It's simple to use. You can connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.